If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Hosea. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. Uh, The text should be in your bulletin, and it will be displayed on the wall in just a moment. But last week, we began a study of this 8th century B.C. prophet. This minor prophet, he's called, because his book is shorter than the major prophets, the longer prophets. It's the prophet of Hosea. Hosea writing to the northern kingdom of Israel, which had split from the southern kingdom of Judah. And his theme in chapter 1, as we heard it last week, was that it was a sobering call to self-examination. That the people of God needed to take a long, hard, good look in the mirror, so to speak. And what he found was that prosperity had hardened the heart of these people. God's blessings to them had somehow made them apathetic towards Him. And Hosea the prophet has been raised up to write a very uncomfortable word, to speak an uncomfortable word to the people of God, accusing them of being guilty of what he calls the vilest adultery that the world has known. And he gives a physical picture of their spiritual reality, having called the prophet to marry a promiscuous woman, a woman of unfaithfulness, so that they could image the relationship that the church, God's people, had had with the Lord Himself. Hosea has been called a prophet of doom. And that's because his words are so heavy and they bring such hard news to bear. And it is true, and you're going to hear it in this sermon this morning. Uh, We're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the hard things that he has to say. And you already know, some of you, he uses harsh language. He uses graphic images. But this is what we believe to be the divinely inspired Word of God for the people of God. So we hope to handle it and take it in its proper context and rightly apply it and understand it to our lives. So with that in mind, give your attention to Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which we did hear last week. And then later in the sermon, we will hear selections from chapter 2. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter 
Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruama, which means not loved or no mercy. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, Gomer had another son. And then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray for the Lord's help in understanding His Word. Lord, would You now do what You have promised to do? Minister to Your church. Minister to Your covenant people by Your Word and through Your Spirit. Lord, would You show us the ugliness of sin, our sin. And Lord, would You show us the beauty of covenant mercy found only in Christ the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you're in your living room, your TV room, your family room, whatever you call the room that has a television in it, and you're watching a movie. Not just any movie. You've put on, you've put on a Star Wars movie. Let's say it's episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe you're wanting to teach your children, expose your children to this story. Now, those of you who have not seen the movie, my apologies but hear the story anyway. So you've decided to show this movie, and, and probably everyone in the room has seen it before, but, but in comes someone into the room, and maybe they're eating out of a bag of popcorn, and they have never seen Star Wars in their life. They have no idea what the story is about. And they're watching it, and they're eating their popcorn, and they're trying to make sense out of it, and all of a sudden they say, hey, can you pause that for a minute? You know, it's on a DVD. Could you, could you pause that? And they're like, okay, and you pause it. And they say, who's the guy in all black with the funny hat? And you're like, how do I explain that in a few sentences when you have no context whatsoever and no idea for how the story twists and turns and and characters change, and, and how do you answer that question when there is zero context of the larger story that's been playing out over a long time? That's the challenge of trying to interpret something if you don't have context. And it's not unlike trying to teach and preach from the Bible 
and a book like Hosea, an 8th century B.C. prophet, if you don't have context for what the Lord has been doing and how it's played out through the centuries and what the overarching context of that story is, it's like trying to sum up in two or three sentences who the guy in all black with the funny hat is. There's just, it's overwhelming. So this morning as we begin, I have three points for you. And the first is this. It's the overarching context of the book of Hosea, which is the overarching context of all of Scripture. What we believe to be the context of the Bible in His revelation to us. And that is, I would sum it up this way. One of the great challenges for us as we take up a book like Hosea is that we do what we would instinctively do. We read it for us as Americans, and we read it through our 21st century lens. Well, that's where things tend to go off the rails. So when we read this, there are some basic things we need to have that help us, quote, think like a Hebrew and not so much like an American, especially a 21st century American. Because think of the things, uh, if, you're a, if you're a young person taking up Hosea and reading it in our day and in our culture, where our culture has embedded or is seeking to embed a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a standard for all things, or if in that great American spirit, we think that God is supposed to be fair, if we put a standard of fairness on God, we start reading things through our own lens and not through the lens that God has given us. So the overarching theme to the book of Hosea and to all of Scripture, we believe to be the covenant, God's promise to His people of what He is doing in them, through them, and for them. Of course, the Bible speaks of His covenant, God's covenant with Adam and with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and of a new covenant. But we see all of these things as the unfolding purpose of one true covenant of God. And that covenant with humanity to have a particular people that He would make His treasured possession. It's first found in Genesis 17, which was our reflection as we began our service. Listen to verses 7 and 8 there in this context of covenant. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. And in this covenant that God initiates with His people through creation, there's covenant language that surfaces over and over again. The covenant formula that you just heard, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And those are the parameters of the relationship. He is God and we are not and He makes the rules. And He binds Himself to us and gives His people His identity. 
So God establishes his identity, his people's identity. He makes promises and he reveals purposes. And all that is in the covenant language and identity that he prescribes. But in that covenant relationship, there's also symbols and images that he uses. In the Old Testament, you know that he uses circumcision. He uses meals. In the New Testament, he uses baptism and he uses the Lord's Supper. And here also in Hosea, as well as in the New Testament, he uses marriage. Marriage as a means of communicating what his relationship with his people is like. And so here he takes Hosea and says, marry an unfaithful woman. Because that is the nature of how my church, my people, have responded to me. And we know marriage to be a covenantal relationship. That was the nature by which it was given to us. Then for these Hebrew people, we know from them, and it's evident in the text that we just read, that names are a big deal. Names have meaning. Now, those of you who are parents, you have chosen names for your children. And sometimes there's great meaning to the names that you've chosen. But sometimes there's not. Sometimes we just thought it was a good name. It was a pretty name. We just like that name. But for the Hebrews, it was meaningful. Names conveyed meaning. And so what's in a name? To be or not to be. Well, literally, that's what's at stake as Hosea's prophecy begins. And so we're introduced to four names in chapter 1. And I'm going to introduce those and their meaning to you briefly. Then we'll get to the consequences of what those mean. So first, in verse 4, it says that Gomer, his unfaithful wife, and Hosea would have a child named Jezreel. Jezreel. We learn of Jezreel mostly in 1st and 2nd Kings, and particularly in 2nd Kings 9 and 10. And if you want a difficult read today after lunch, read 2nd Kings 9 and 10 to get the context of how he's referencing Jezreel. Jezreel was a town in northern Israel, and it was defined by notorious events that were characterized by violence and bloodshed. Naboth was viciously murdered there for his vineyard. Ahab was put to death, and his blood was licked up by dogs. Jezebel was thrown from a tower and eaten by dogs, save only her hands and feet. And the entire household of Ahab was put to death there. And the heads of his 70 sons were brought there and stacked into piles at Jezreel per the command of Jehu. It's pretty graphic. It's very bloody. It's, it's, it's vicious. It's not the name you would think to name a child. One commentator that I read said the equivalent for us maybe would be to, to name your child Auschwitz. You just wouldn't do that. It's a, it's a vivid picture of darkness, of bloodshed, of violence, of, of awfulness. And yet the Lord says, give that child that name for a reason. 
There is blood to be shed for sin. And it's going to be violent and it's going to be ugly. But then there's a second child. And he says to name this child Lo Ruama, which in Hebrew means not loved or no mercy, more literally. No mercy. That is to say, name your child the one who is not pitied, the one who is not to receive mercy, the one who is not cared for, the one who is not favored. Again, it's not a name you would think to name your little child, but the Lord said, name them no mercy. This is the same Lord who in Deuteronomy 7, 6 said this of His people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Now this is confusing to us. How could the God who said, you're my people, you're my treasured possession, then turn and sound in a sense bipolar, it sounds bipolar, for him to say, no, you're not my people. You're not my treasured possession. There's a tension here that is Hosea's point. It's the Lord's point through Hosea to show them what's at stake, that everything is at stake. Then it goes on from there. Well, before I do that, um, the hymn by John Newton. We didn't sing it today, but we've sung it before. His hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. He has a line that captures this very well. He says, Let us love the Lord who bought us, who pitied us when enemies. And so here we're singing in that hymn that the Lord has shown us pity. But to these people, God is saying, I will not show you pity. And there's a tension there. There's a tension that's intended to be very disruptive and very uncomfortable. And then it goes to the third name, and it just gets worse. This child is to be called Lo-Ami, which in Hebrew means not my people. And that's the language of that covenant refrain that is throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. One example being Exodus 6 verse 7. The Lord says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the beautiful promise that I will be your God, and you will be my people, and now the Lord says, you are not my people. This is tension beyond what can be described for us very easily. This is a reversal of everything the Lord had said to these people. And it's disruptive and it's concerning. But the fourth name for them to hear, for you to hear this morning, is the name Hosea. And the name Hosea will begin to bring some resolution to the tension that has been introduced in the sermon. Hosea means salvation. It means he saves. And so Hosea the prophet, raised up to speak these very uncomfortable, very disruptive words, his name itself would bring a hope of resolution to this tension. Rob, Rob Rayburn on this passage says this, 
And this might help put our arms around the whole picture of what's been said so far. The great theme of Hosea the prophet is this. Because Israel has forsaken God's covenant with her, she shall be punished for her sin. Two-thirds of the book, two-thirds, is devoted to Hosea's presentation of evidence in the manner of a prosecuting attorney that Israel had broken covenant with God. Another quarter of the book is given to enumerating and describing the various curses which will befall Israel. The very curses God promised to visit upon His people should they betray the covenant when He made the covenant with Israel in the days of Moses. So what's the overarching context of the book of Hosea and all the Bible? It's this covenant promise, this covenant relationship that God has initiated with His people. And with that covenant come the promise of blessings and curses. And this is what can be so disruptive to our American ears. If we've not heard this and had a context for how Old Testament and New Testament communicate the same God. He doesn't change. Marcion in the second century, the heretic, said that God changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We don't believe that. We believe there is something that ties all this together, as hard as it is to hear, into a beautiful story of redemption and a beautiful story of grace. But to get to that grace, Hosea introduces us to the real threat of covenant curses. That sin really does have consequences. When we rebel against God, there really are consequences. We're introduced to these in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just a few excerpts from there. Verse 1. The context here being the covenant. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. That's the introduction to the consequences. And then in verse 15, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, curses will come on you and overtake you. Then verses 64 and 65. Some of those curses. This is just a small excerpt of them. The Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. And there... You will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations, you will find no repose, that is, no rest, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. So the Lord has said, if you're not faithful to me, if you break relationship with me, literally says, you're going to be an anxious person. 
You're going to have no peace, no rest. You're going to look to things to bring peace and rest, and they will never give you peace and rest. And your heart will be filled with despair. Now you can fill that in and apply it to yourself. For when you know you have looked to something, someone other than the living God to give you hope, to give you assurance, to give you peace, and what have you found? It leaves you empty and in despair. That's exactly what he had promised. And so it is true, and we know it to some degree, but to these people, Hosea is speaking this stirring word to stir their hearts. And that takes us into chapter 2 of Hosea. Listen to these words. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. Speaking of Gomer. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That's the language of divorce. That's the ultimate threat of the covenant. The Lord is saying in that, in that very way, you are not my people. I am not your husband. You are not my wife. And that is indication of the threat, the real threat of covenant curses. But he goes on from there. Listen to these excerpts from chapter 2. It's too long to read all of it. So listen to these excerpts. Because his wife has been unfaithful, he says, the Lord says, I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So she's wrong in that she has not looked to the Lord as the giver of these things. She thinks these other men have given these things to her. Then in verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. And then verse 11, I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her other lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers. But me, she forgot, de declares the Lord. This is the indictment. These are those hard and uncomfortable words that the Lord is speaking through Hosea to His church, to His people. And it is uncomfortable to think about. Because we don't like to think about God as being wrathful or just against sin. You and I like to think of the Lord as a sweet, grandfatherly, grandmotherly soul who pinches our cheek and is adored, adores us. But the Bible is speaking Old Testament and New about the reality, the real threat that God 
is just with sin. God is wrathful towards sin. Rob Rayburn, again in his commentary on this passage, says this. See if this resonates with your experience. In our modern era, there is scarcely a doctrine more unfashionable, more unwelcome, more likely to suffer ridicule than the doctrine of God's wrath against sinners. Modern man will hear nothing of it and scorns the very idea as primitive and juvenile. And so we, fearful of the opinion of man as we often are, say nothing as if we are embarrassed by this truth. If we have learned anything of human nature, it is that all mankind is constitutionally inclined to disbelieve what is unwelcome, and that even very clever people will refuse to believe what they do not want to be true, however true it may be. That resonates with me and my experience in this life. How about with you? But this doctrine of God's justice and God's wrath, it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. Continue, uh, consider what our own Dr. George Schwab says in his commentary on Hosea. The immediate focus of Hosea is on the coming covenant curses. By worshiping other gods, Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant. And punishment for her unfaithfulness must come. Those who abandon covenant faithfulness can expect covenant curse. The New Testament, the New Testament, bears similar warnings for the people of God. And so we have to be sobered by this reality that the nature of our God is that He is just and He is holy. And Dr. Schwab goes on in his comments after that to show how in the book of Hebrews, which we just studied, is all about this same context of covenant threats of cursing for those who do not persist in faithfulness to the Lord. And so we could end our sermon right there and, and leave here with a sense of, oh my word, what do we do with this holiness, this justice of God? But even Hosea the prophet in his sternness, he didn't stop there. Chapter 2 goes on. And after all that covenant indictment, all that identifying their shortcoming, their rebellion, their promiscuity against the Lord. The second half of chapter 2 is all about not the real threat of covenant threats, covenant curses, but the real hope of covenant mercy. And this too captures the nature of the God of the Bible. Listen to these excerpts from chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her, that is, the unfaithful wife, the church. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And I will remove the names of the Baals, the foreign gods, from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, 
I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. Then he says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And then in verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And here is the tension. The covenant justice of God that can rightly and should rightly bring curses and judgment against those who are unfaithful. And yet that same God in His nature, His character, His purpose is filled with mercy. And that's the tension in the book of Hosea. And that's the tension in your life and mine. That we individually and as a whole church, we deserve the just wrath of God. Because we are not a holy people. But God in His infinite mercy is able to resolve the justice with His mercy. And on that, it was well said in Dr. Schwab's commentary, says this, God loves His people, but He must punish evil. How does the Lord reconcile His deep love for His people with His need to bring justice to bear? These two passions of God find their resolution in the cross of Jesus Christ. There, the just punishment for sin and the deep love of God meet together. And the book of Hosea yearns for the cross and seeks Jesus to fulfill it. Do you see that? The people's need. Their covenant unfaithfulness was a real problem. It was a real threat to them. And they would be punished for their sin. We'll see this as the book goes on. There will be judgment. There will be bloodshed. They will be crushed. But the Lord would renew and return. And He would bring grace and mercy and save a remnant. He will allure His people and speak tenderly to them and betroth them to Himself forever. And so the nature of God, as Hosea the prophet reveals it, is twofold. God is just and He is holy. And that is a problem for sinners. But our greatest hope is that He proves to be merciful. He is tender. He will allure His church, speak tenderly to them, and betroth, bind himself by means of promise to them forever. And so Hosea the prophet captured their attention. They didn't like half of what he had to say. But everything he had to say was true. As I said last week, it's, it's in the badness of the bad news that the goodness of the good news becomes so sweet to us. 
We have to know both ends of the story, the full story, not one without the other. John Newton, in that same hymn I referenced earlier, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, one of his stanzas says this, Let us wonder, let us think about how grace and justice, those same tensions, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. It's the same resolution to the same tension. That in the cross we have both grace and justice that satisfies God's holiness and His mercy. That's the good news. That's a lot of context. It's a lot to take in, but it's all covenantal. We have to think like a Hebrew. We have to hear what the Lord says in the context that He gave it. And it's uncomfortable at times. But the conclusion is that despite the ugliness of our sin, there is a beautiful story of grace for those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray and let's sing. Lord, we thank You for this abundant mercy, this covenant mercy that can overcome the wickedness and the ugliness of our sin. So Lord, as we hear this, and even as we sing about Your mercy, Lord, may we confess truly the ugliness of our sin. May we not pretend to be what we aren't. But Lord, may we find our every hope in You as our covenant Lord, who's full of covenant mercy. We pray it with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.